comes now. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome up Brad. It's that awkward, like two or three clapping. The rest of you guys are sitting there watching me suffer. How good. Um, just a bit of uh, life advice, nothing to do with the gospel. Don't wear burks when it's pouring down rain. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, hey, great to be here. It's kind of nice having a bit of a smaller crowd, I guess. It's, it's like having just a, a conversation, which, which I like to think that's what we're doing. Um, but so encouraged um, just to be a part of a community that genuinely seeks to understand who God is and to see His work and His goodness and His love be magnified to the world through the way that which we live. Honestly, I'm encouraged every time. I just think, wow, like, like to think this person over here is doing all this stuff. It's just incredible to be a part of what God's doing here in the city. So um, props to you guys. It's good. So if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called That They May Be One. So the basic premise of that, we've been looking at John chapter 17, uh, where Jesus is praying for his uh, disciples at the time, and he's praying, uh, pleading with God that they, the disciples, plus us um, in this present moment, would be unified with one another, that beyond any humanity or any, I guess, effort to be unified, that we'd be divinely unified, not only with one another, uh, but with Christ himself. So I was just going to read that. That's going to come up on the screen. This is kind of the text that we've been looking at, John 17, and I'm going to read 20 to 23. It's a bit wordy, so stay with me. Um, my prayer is not for them alone. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us. That includes us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May, all, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that we, sorry, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. Pretty powerful words coming from Jesus as he prays for us, that we would be unified. And um, Dan, when we gathered last time, posed a question. He said, do you feel like your heart is growing or is it contracting? Do you feel like your capacity to love is growing, that you feel more inclusive, that you're more welcoming, that, um, you know, you can invite people in? Or do you feel like you're becoming more, um, I guess, inclusive and you're, you're shrinking a little bit? And I've just been thinking over this week, like our hearts as Christian believers, they're not going to be changed with more information. Um, we each have unlimited, essentially, information at the tips of our fingers. You're going to hear hundreds of thousands of preachers that are far more eloquent than I am, or I'm sure. Maybe not Matt, he, he's pretty good, but we're not going to be changed with more information. We need the living spirit of Christ to come and to transform and change us. We need to, in submission to Him, put one foot in front of the other in obedience, dying to that selfishness that, that often comes to the surface where we think, me, 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 dying to that, so that we might experience resurrection life today, not in some distant future when we're zapped off to heaven. Now, God wants us to be like this right now. And I, wanted, I was also thinking, Jesus' prayer, although there is some truth that it, He is kind of talking about a future idea. It, it's not some abstract or lofty prayer. 
He's praying for us in this very moment, present day, that we, in increasing measure, would experience the unity that God has with the Son and with the Spirit, that we would participate in the divine, and in so, we would be unified, deeply unified as a community. This night, that's what Christ wants for us, that we might participate in the divine. Don't you like that? We participate in the divine, and therefore, we share the divine with the world. So, just on that note, again, it's the Spirit's power. It's not uh, a, a great story. It's not the words that, you know, I put together. It's not my message. It's Christ's message here tonight. So, I'm just going to pray that right at the outset that our hearts are open and, and ready to receive what God is wanting us to take hold of tonight. So, I'm going to pray for us. Would you join with me? Lord, we want to thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who lavishes your love upon us, God, that you are actually not withholding any good thing from us, your people. And Lord, uh, this very night, we, well, I personally know that you want to speak to, to each person in this room, that you have something that you want to say, Lord, and would we be a people that are responsive and ready, God, to receive what you would have for us, Lord, that our hearts would be growing, not contracting. God, that the world might know you, that the world might see you, through our unity and our love. So God, we lift you up. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever been walking through Coles or Bunnings and someone sees you wearing a very similar outfit to one of the staff and they say, hey mate, like where can I find this? I don't know if anyone's experienced that, just me, that's awesome. Um, But there is something about a particular set of clothing that makes that Bunnings or Coles distinct. You, you can spot a Coles employee. You can spot a Bunnings employee. Um, you can spot whatever employee you want. Um, my wife was one time at Hair House Warehouse. Apparently, it's like a combo of you sell hair stuff and it's also a hair salon. But she happened to be wearing the exact like uniform. Someone came up to her and was like, hey, where can I find this? And she just went with it because she's the sort of person that kind of rolls with the punches. She went with it, she showed him a few products and she explained what they were and how they worked and um, the person was very satisfied and she actually got offered a job. So she's, she's pretty good but she, she's not here but um, Ernest is sick so she's at home. But there's something about that, isn't there? There's, there's a distinction about somebody that works somewhere with the way that what they're wearing and it doesn't just apply to where you work, it's like your political party, Republican, red, Democrat, blue, there's associations, you know. With religious sects, um, you can spot a particular person that believes a certain thing, potentially with something they wear, how they act, all these sorts of things. And it got me thinking, what makes a Christian distinct? And I just wanted to give you a minute to turn to the person next to you and kind of talk about that. What makes a Christian distinct? Let's take a minute now. good. It's not, a, it's not a trick question. Uh, you might think so, but I've actually already given you the answer. So, we read 
a little moment ago, John 17, that last snippet, I don't know if you took hold of that. So when we are brought into complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you've loved me. See, it's that idea of when we are unified as a community, when we are together in complete unity, the world knows. We are distinct through our unity. Jesus' words in John 13 says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So what what I'm getting at is our distinctiveness or our saltiness as Christians It's not in our individual efforts to to conjure up a goodness or a righteousness of our own. It's actually in our love for one another. It's our unity as a community that God wants to reveal himself to the world. And I uh, called Matt up this week and we were talking a bit around a good tree producing good fruit. And I'm I'm sure we're pretty familiar with that, um, I guess, the parable there. A good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. And I just, again, thinking, I'm always thinking about these random things, but we do not want to be a people that have a bad tree, grab some fruit and staple the fruit to the tree, if you know what I mean. We, as a, as a Christian community, we can conjure up these loving acts and we can put on the fact that we're unified, but unless we are truly unified, it doesn't mean anything. There's no substance to it. So I really want to say, let's not be people that staple fruit to a bad tree. Listen to Paul's words from in 1 Corinthians here. He says, if I speak in tongues of men's or angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. That is what we're saying here tonight. If we front up with unity, if we're pretending to love one another up, if you have to really work hard to conjure up enough love or grace to show someone a loving thing, if, if, if love isn't at the center, if love isn't the motive behind our unity or our acts, we have nothing. So tonight we're going to be looking at a particular community in the Bible. Um, We're going to be looking at the Galatian community, or uh, the pockets of churches there. And we're going to be looking in chapter 1. So I'm going to read that together, and we're just going to kind of look, a bit of a snapshot, Paul's writing into this community. So I'm going to read it to us, then we'll have a bit of a a deeper dive. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. These are pretty strong words. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel, other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
as we have already said, and now we say it again, if anyone is preaching a gospel to you other than the one that you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings or, or of God? If I was trying to win the approval of people or please people, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from a man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it from Jesus. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely, so how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own, my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see the other apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. So I think it's important right at the outset uh, of this Galatians thing where we're going to run through um, all six chapters to give a bit of context for what's actually going on. So Paul, he's obviously the author. He states his name straight up the top there. He's writing to the provinces, the, the churches in the province of Galatia. I think that was comprised of about four or five churches. And Paul had actually set these churches up. He had gone there on his first missionary trip, which you can read about in Acts. So the recipients of this letter were actually intimately known by Paul. He had, he had prayed with them. He had taught them. No doubt he had shared a meal with them, he had, um, you know, cried with them, he'd encouraged them, he had set these churches up. And I think it's pretty clear, if you're familiar with this letter, or from when I just read it, there's, there's a bit of a sense that Paul is frustrated, to the point of even, he comes across as a bit aggressive, doesn't he? You see, Christianity started as a, a Jewish messianic movement, the Jews were awaiting this long-awaited Messiah to come. And when Jesus did come, there were some Jews that were converted. So there were the Jewish believers, but they didn't want to keep it there. The message of the gospel is so much bigger than one ethnic group. So it rapidly expanded. From the very beginning, God wanted to include all people in this message. So by the time Paul comes along, there are Gentile believers and there are Jewish believers, and it's very diverse. The body of Christ is very diverse at that time. But historically, the people of God were sort of, it was one ethnic group. They were the people of Israel, and they were steeped in tradition, they were followers of law, they observed certain feasts, certain rituals, all these things. So they had a whole lot of, you don't want to call it baggage, but they had an idea of what it was to serve God. So, when these Gentile converts sort of came into the church, these Jewish uh, converts were kind of, you can imagine that caused a bit of tension. So, these Jewish believers, they were firm believers in circumcision and all these rules, and they were actually trying to impose that onto these new Gentile believers coming in. They said, essentially, that the grace of, of Christ is, is not, well, it's good, but you also need to follow the law of Moses, you also need to be circumcised, there are things that you need to do to add to that work. This is how Acts actually puts it, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, this is what they were teaching them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Isn't that interesting? 
So as the church exploded and it, it's rapidly spread out, these Jewish believers that were spreading that sort of gospel made their way into the churches in the province of Galatia there. And they started uh, preaching a different gospel, but they were also trying to undermine the authority of Paul. So Paul, he had come, um, he was claiming that he was an apostle. And you can imagine, you, you infer a lot from the text, but um, these, these Judaizers, as they call them, or the Jewish converts, uh, they had come in and said, this Paul guy, have you heard of him? Like he, if you've read the Gospels, if you're familiar with the Gospels, there's, Jesus appoints 12 people to be his apostles. Paul doesn't appear in that list. And then one is replaced, that's not Paul. So here they are saying, well, he's, he's not a part of this apostle group, like he's, he's claiming to be a, an apostle here. So they were undermining Paul's authority and therefore undermining Paul's message. You see, these apostles, as I mentioned, they were chosen, they were personally chosen, they were called and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And therefore they were authorized to preach in his name. And Paul came into the scene after the resurrection. So Jesus had ascended, and, and you know, well, you might not know, but Paul, he was a, a firm and zealous believer in the Jewish tradition. And he actually persecuted the church. When the church first hit the scene, he persecuted the church hard. He even sanctioned murders in the case. So he's not one of these typical apostles. But again, if you read the account of Acts, you want to say that, Paul encountered Christ, but it's, it's more that Christ encountered Paul. Paul didn't ask for this time, but he was walking. And Christ, he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus to go and persecute the church further. So this is what Paul says. He says, Paul, an apostle. In that first bit of the letter that he says, Paul, an apostle, it's, there's no ifs or buts about it. He says, Paul, an apostle. And his authority came through his encounter with Christ, where Jesus Christ commissioned him to be an apostle, to spread the good news to the Gentile believers. And that, that little um, bit there at the start where it says Paul, an apostle, it's actually quite a bit different to the other epistles. Uh, you'll see ones that says, Paul, called by the grace of God to be an apostle. This one is like, no, Paul, apostle. There's no ifs or buts about it. Not only was he called by Christ, if we read there as well that it was actually before he was born that Christ had set him apart. It set him apart in his mother's womb um, to be a messenger, to bring the good news, the gospel to the Gentile believers. So in response to these people, these Judaizers, these Jewish converts that were spreading a false gospel, Paul says this, Paul an apostle, he is an apostle. And he spoke Christ's message, because it came from Christ. He spoke Christ's message on Christ's authority. He was an apostle, not appointed by men, but appointed by Jesus Christ himself through revelation. So after he defends his, his title or his authority to speak, he then goes and uh, defends his message. And we know, because we read it there, that Paul actually did not receive this message by any human origin. It was from a divine origin. He actually says that when he encountered Christ or when Christ encountered him, he didn't shoot straight off to the apostles in Jerusalem to just double check a couple of things. He didn't jot down notes in his iPhone. He received it directly from Christ. He didn't consult man. 
And then it says he actually went alone. And a lot of people believe he took a lot of time to be in solitude by himself with God, learning from God. And he says that these, the gospel that these Jewish converts were spreading was, was actually no gospel at all. The gospel liberates, the gospel sets free, the gospel invites us into more life. But this gospel, this circumcision gospel, were actually piling burdens on people, making people's burdens heavier. And that does not sound like the work of Christ, does it? Because Christ says, come to me, all those who are burdened, and I will give you rest. They were perverting this gospel, a gospel that invites us into the divine, a gospel that liberates and sets us free, and a gospel that tells us that God, the Father, Christ Jesus, is not holding anything of himself back from us. These Judaizers, I don't know if that term is confusing, sorry, I'm, I'm just, I mean, when I say Judaizers, I'm just talking about those who were pushing the circumcision on those Gentile believers, but they were preaching that you must finish Christ's unfinished work, that he was all good and what he did was great and, and that, was, that was fine, but you just need to dot a few I's, cross a few T's to really lock it in. Paul's message really was, was not his own message so to speak. It was Christ's message. That is where his authority was coming from. It's funny, if you know a bit of a background of Paul, I I mentioned it, but he actually has a unique vantage point here. He's actually seen both sides. He says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law backwards. Listen to his words here in Philippians. He says, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh... I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness in the law, faultless. But whatever was a gain to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have lost all things. Listen to these words. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness from the law or observing the law, but through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul, in his former life, he was the top, he was the top dog. We know that he studied under um, some bigwig Pharisee. He obeyed the law to a T. But you know what? It did not lead Paul's heart to, uh, to grow and expand and to experience the same love for people that God has for people. It, in fact, did the very opposite. And in all of it, Paul says he considers all of that observance, like the status that he might have had, he considers it all garbage that he might gain Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness from God himself. And see, having that vantage point, having experienced what it is um, to be in Christ and to feel that connection with him and to be unified with others, and on the other end of the spectrum, having known what it is to be um, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to observe the law to a T, he is genuinely perplexed. And he's frustrated, and, and that comes out in his writing. 
He's frustrated that these believers, these people that he poured his time and his energy in, these people that he cared about so deeply, just turning so quickly, turning so quickly back to a gospel that was no gospel at all. It did not bring about freedom. It did not bring about an enlarged heart. And it just reminds me, and I don't know if you ever get frustrated when you're reading the story of the Israelites just time and time again. They turn back. They turn back. It's almost like we as human beings have a proclivity to want to be enslaved, to want to be in bondage. The Israelites come out. God's miraculously freed them from Egypt and they're walking, but they start to complain. Let's go back to Egypt. We had food there at the very least, but God was providing for them this whole time. You see, Paul knew that to turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the God of grace. To turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the God of grace. It is impossible to forsake the gospel without forsaking the God of the gospel. It's impossible to forsake this true, real, vibrant gospel without forsaking God himself. And Paul did this because he knew, and he writes in Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and to the Gentile. See, Paul knew the power of the gospel, the inclusive nature of the gospel, Jew, Gentile, together, unified. The gospel, right believing, um, leading to a salvation. Life now, a goodness in your life, an experience of the divine today, right now. So that's why he was so intense and so... um, direct with the Galatians. It wasn't out of a, it wasn't out of like an anger toward them necessarily. It was out of a love that he had for them. He didn't want them to be blindsided. He didn't want them to turn. He knew that they were substituting um, a false gospel or the gospel for a false one. And he knew where that ends because he'd been there. He'd seen that. And we know that um, Paul actually uses some pretty strong language here in Galatians. Um, I read it as well there. He, he actually says that if anyone, if anyone, including themselves, he included themselves in this, should preach to you a different gospel, let them be under the curse of God. Let them be under God's curse. He actually says it twice, and I think that's trying to reiterate the point that this isn't something that he takes lightly. This is not hyperbole. This is something that is true. This is something that is real. And he, was, he wasn't simply speaking to those who, ha- like, with no fault of their own, held sort of a false view. He was directly speaking to those that were teaching others these false views, misleading them in the process. He knew that, like, as an early church, young believers there, that people, it is right for a person to come in and just cause a little bit of confusion, perverting the gospel even so slightly that it is no longer the gospel. It is a burden. So the emphasis is on a people misleading other people. And even still, you could say that that's pretty harsh language. It doesn't sound like Christ, does it, to say, let them be under God's curse. But listen to Jesus' own words here in Mark 9, when he's talking about a person that misleads another one, little ones, Similar to, you know, the little ones that just knew in the faith in the the church of Galatia. Listen to Jesus' words. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them 
if a large milestone were hung around their neck and that they were thrown into the sea. You know, Paul actually cared so deeply for the souls of men that he himself actually said that he would be willing to be accursed so that others might be saved. He said that he would be deliberately cut off from Christ if some would come to know Christ. That are strong words. Listen to his own words here in John. I'm not in John. Um, He says, I have a deep sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, I wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Aren't they intense, intense words? I don't know if you've ever thought about that yourself, to be willing to be cut off from Christ that others might know Christ. That, that is a man who deeply loves. That is a man who is not stapling fruit to a tree. He genuinely loves other people to the point that he himself would be cursed so that others might come into a saving relationship with Christ. And listen, listen again. There's a lot of Bible quotes. I hope, I hope you guys like that. But listen to this here. In John 15, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. There is no greater love than this, to lay one's life down for one's friend. And thinking about Paul being willing to be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of others, it reminds me of the story of Jesus. It says, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. Jesus entered into that curse so that you and I might grab hold of this real and authentic gospel, this vibrant gospel that we might know life today that we might experience the divine, participate in the divine today. So when Paul's focus was on self and elevating himself and obeying the rules, he killed people, he killed Christians. When Paul's focus turned to Christ, he was actually willing to give up his life for the sake of others. So when the focus was inward, when the focus was me, how do I look How can I achieve? How can I do this or that? He killed Christian people. But when the focus was turned to Christ solely, he was willing to give up his own life for the sake of others. And I think that is a message for us. It is certainly a message for me. We need to turn outward. We as a church need to turn outward. We need to experience what it is to live with the the gospel in the center informing the way that we love one another and just focus on giving of ourselves. This is the way that Christ will be known in the world. It's by how we love each other. It's how unified we are as a community. In the world, I tell you, the world needs that right now. The world needs the church. The world needs the people of God. And right at the start there, we said that it is the way that we love one another, that he will be known. It's the unity. When we're brought into unity, that is when the world will know that Christ has loved us just as he has loved his son. And I just wanted to, I guess, pose this question in closing. Are you stapling fruit to the tree? Are you stapling fruit to the tree? Is the inside rotting? but you want to appear as if you love another person, as if, like, we can conjure it up. And, 
you might be able to do that or appear that certain way for a time, but it is not sustainable. We need to be connected to the vine. We need to be connected to Christ. We need to, like I said, put one foot in front of the other in obedience to Him, empowered by His Spirit, to die to the self, to die to this selfishness that seems to be inherent to the human experience. We need to give that up and we need to follow Him. Don't accept any false gospel. Just like Paul, do not accept any false gospel. The good news is that we can participate in the divine, that we can experience the divine here now, that God is not withholding Himself from you or from I. Isn't that incredible news? That we can know the King, that we can know the Creator. And we don't have to pretend, we do not have to staple fruit to the tree. And if you think that, you know, you can't do that, I'm telling you that you can. I'm telling you that you can. With Jesus' strength, we can do it together. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing one last song and go to dinner. So let me pray for us. Lord, you are so good and you are so kind. Lord, I want to thank you for the strength that is available in your spirit. Lord, I want to thank you that you include us in your marvelous plan to reveal your goodness to the world, your love to the world. And Lord, thank you that we do not do it in our own strength, Lord. In fact, we repent from the times when we strive and we strive and we strive to appear a certain way. When we just come before you and lay it down, we do not need to strive. Lord, we as a community want to be known, not as a, as a community that staples fruit to the tree, not as a, a community that tries to conjure up these good things so that we appear a certain way to the public. No, that's not what we want. Lord, we, we desire and we long to be a people empowered by your Holy Spirit that love one another, not do loving things, for one another, although that will come. But we want to love each other well. God, we want a unity. We want to experience this unity that you talk of now, in the present, in, in increasing measure, Lord, as we take steps towards you, God. We want to experience what it is to be deeply unified as a community, to have love for one another, to serve one another, to lay our lives down, our finances down, our agendas down for each other. And Lord, what a privilege it is that we can participate in your work here on earth. Lord, we just give up our striving. We give it up to you, Lord. We come to you with heavy burdens here tonight, Lord, and ask that in return you give us your light burden. God, that we might experience you here in the land of the living. In your mighty and your powerful name. Amen.